Well, today we have with us Dr. Roger Watson, who is a Brisbane-based urologist sub-specializing in urological oncology with over 25 years of experience. He's the current director of urology and urogynecology at MARTA Adults Hospital. He's actively involved in research at the MARTA and on a national level. He is a past chairman of the Northern Section of the Urological Society of Australia and New Zealand and a founding member of the highly successful Queensland Robotic Surgery. Dr. Watson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I guess we'll just start off by asking you, what does an average day look like? So uh, urology is a, is a, a surgical subspecialty. And so the day for us usually encompasses uh, some consultation with office consultation. We uh, usually are managing some inpatients uh, in hospital. And that's because as a surgical subspecialty, we are involved a fair bit with some diagnostics. So that's often endoscopic evaluation for urological cancer, as well as treatment. And, and uh, one of the things that uh, makes it a fairly uh, broad uh, subspecialty is the fact that you know, we are involved with endoscopic and open surgery and with quite a lot of variations of technology tend to spend some time both procedurally and doing office consultation assessment of patients with urological cancer and obviously their follow-up. Would you say you have a most interesting case? We certainly get some very grateful patients. Uh, some people have very significant disabling symptoms when they come along, particularly, for example, with variations of bladder cancer. So in general, it's the, the things that, or the cases I recall most generally are people where they've uh, gone through treatment and ultimately reflected that uh, we've been able to turn around their quality of life and ultimately hopefully have some impact on the length of their life as well. And so generally it's a matter of trying to focus on both those aspects of quality of life and ultimately uh, cancer control or cancer outcome for patients. Well, it's good to hear that you do have a lot of those cases. And I guess that's something we're going to be focusing on today in this podcast is, I guess, the sexual health sequelae that come with the treatment of urological cancers. What are the, the biggest cancers in your mind affecting the urological system that have an impact on a patient's sexual health? So it's relevant for both the men and women. And uh, so bladder cancer is obviously a particular condition that does overlap and relatively equally for men and for women, and a definitely potential impact on sexual function. In addition to that, in men specifically, cancer of the prostate is a very significant condition. It's certainly a very prevalent condition and treatment, as we can cover, certainly can have a significant impact on sexual function. The other important aspect for men, uh, particularly younger men where it's relevant, is testis cancer. That's uh, an important condition uh, in men's sexual function. And in, in addition, in women, there is the uh, areas of gynecological cancer, which although we don't principally manage day to day, we can sometimes be involved with the collaborative care with our gynecology oncology colleagues. And they're the, they're the main cancer areas that uh, we tend to consider in urology. So we definitely hear a lot about prostate cancer in medical school as being one of the commonest cancers that affects men. What efforts do we take to preventing this? The current advice that we give patients uh, or we give the population in Australia is that 
one factor that can influence the incidence of prostate cancer or the need to go and screen is if there's a specific family history of prostate cancer. It's really the only recognised risk factor. And certainly we would flag that as, a, as something that men should be aware of in terms of considering going for screening. Uh, screening for prostate cancer largely surrounds using a blood test, so the PSA blood test. And although the PSA test isn't cancer specific, so in other words, there are potentially false positives and false negatives with the test, it still represents overall the best predictor. It's a test that's not used alone in the sense that uh, it is really something that would be in combination with some clinical assessment, um, at least with their primary care physician, uh, ideally a physical examination of the prostate. And then if there is a defined pattern that emerges of PSA testing, for example, at men from age 50 to age 70, that generally would lead on to further evaluation and that mainly now relate, relates to using prostatic MRI imaging. So it's a, a screening algorithm that's a little complex in the sense that it's changing as the technology keeps changing. But there is no question that there is increasing evidence emerging, particularly from big European studies, that in the correct defined population, and definitely if there's a history of prostate cancer in the family, there are certainly defined benefits of cancer detection and certainly cancer survival with prostate cancer screening. The main implication, and we can talk about it some more, really relates to the fact that treatment of prostate cancer certainly can have a significant impact on quality of life. So there can be some trade-off, sometimes very significant trade-off in screening or early detection of prostate cancer where treatment and cure is possible, but it may be that there's a significant trade-off for quality of life. And and that's something that an individual or we should certainly be considering for patients when we discuss screening with them or often in the setting of their primary care to consider whether that's um, uh, how important those factors are in each person or in each man as to whether he goes and screens for prostate cancer. We'll definitely have a look into those that trade-off that people consider um, a bit later in the show. But for now, we'll just talk about our testicular cancer. You said the demographic for that is markedly younger. Um, do you see that screening is just as important in that demographic? So testicular cancer, as we said, is this condition that affects men typically from age 20 to 40. Um, again, we don't really have clearly defined risk factors other than the developmental condition where men can be born without the testis necessarily being present in the scrotum. The significance of the condition is that it does affect young men and if undiagnosed, or in other words, if it presents late, then there's no doubt it's significantly more difficult to treat, um, much more side effects associated with treatment. And although the treatments these days are very effective, in other words, the likelihood of being cured from testis cancer is very high, you know, there is still defined risk uh, in relation to uh, that it can be a life-threatening cancer. So for all of those reasons, there's good evidence to show that if you can detect testicular cancer early, then there is certainly clear benefit. The main strategy to do that in terms of things that are being looked at for screening really relates to education and getting men involved with testicular self-examination. And it's certainly been shown that if there's an awareness and men are aware of aiming to detect on, on examination of the testis, if there's any change in 
size or shape or texture of the testis, you know, that should immediately um, lead to some uh, discussion with their, with their doctor so that they can have that evaluated. And there's good evidence that uh, if they follow those guidelines, that uh, early detection certainly leads to much simpler treatment and a high likelihood of cure. Well, we might move now on to just talking about the prostate, that trade-off that men might have to make between, you know, that early diagnosis going through those tests and the effect it has on their quality of life. What are some of those effects? So if we talk about treatment for prostate cancer, there's no doubt that there can be significant impact in terms of quality of life and function. So just to recap, remember the sole role of the prostate is as part of fertility is semen production. The issue is that pretty much all of the treatments that we currently use for prostate cancer will have some impact on sexual function. The two big areas uh, that we focus on particularly are to try and minimize the impact in relation to sexual function and to a degree and try and ensure minimize impact in relation to urinary function and certainly less commonly bowel function. Surgery is probably the most widely used treatment, certainly in uh, Australia for men under age 70 for early prostate cancer, recognizing that there can be a role for radiation therapy and there are some other emerging treatments. The issue then if you utilize treatment with a view to cure is that there will definitely be impact in se on sexual function and that impact is uh, influenced by to a degree the age of the patient to when they have treatment, uh, what their sexual function is prior to treatment and to a degree, a lot of the details of exactly how the procedure is done. And so a big part of counselling men in relation to treatment of prostate cancer is, is, is evaluating those aspects of function and certainly having some detailed discussion with the patient and often with the partner in terms of addressing what these potential impacts of function are. And the thing that tends to be most bothersome for most men is the potential impact on erection function, recognizing that the prostate itself doesn't directly control erection function, but remember the autonomic nervous mechanism that controls erection function in the perineum just runs very, very closely anatomically to the prostate. So the issue is to, to some degree, pretty much all treatments for prostate cancer will have an impact in relation to erection function to some degree. And that can vary enormously from being complete where there will be permanent impact on erection function where men are not able to achieve a satisfactory erection at all to the other end of the spectrum where men will progressively get recovery of erection function, often over quite a long time, sometimes partially, sometimes near completely. And so many things can impact on that, but it's clearly a very big aspect in relation to the treatment that needs to be considered. And for most men with early prostate cancer treatment, it tends to be the main impact on their quality of life. So are you saying, given the impact that this has on erectile function, it's arguably more marked due to the treatments for prostate cancer than the cancer itself? That's correct. So the cancer, particularly early prostate cancer, generally doesn't have much impact on sexual function overall. I mean, generally it won't impact much in relation to semen production. It tends to have minimal impact on erection function. So it's certainly the treatment that is the important issue here. And so one of the things that's important as part of the counselling 
and addressing the diagnosis in men is the fact that a lot of men with early prostate cancer don't have symptoms, so they tend to not have any major impact in relation to sexual function or urinary function. And therefore, we're having a discussion often with fit, healthy men about what is potentially a life-threatening condition and the role to treat it. And part of the discussion is recognizing that the treatment may, to some degree, have an impact on sexual function. And therefore, that needs to be considered or weighed up in relation to uh, the exact treatment that's used, the timing of treatment, and then specifically, what other things can be considered to assist or manage uh, aspects of ongoing sexual dysfunction, particularly erectile dysfunction in men after they've had treatment. Obviously, prostate cancer has a significant impact on sexual functioning. What similarities can you draw to the other cancers you've mentioned today, like uh, bladder cancer and testicular cancer? Fortunately, testicular cancer doesn't have a lot of impact in relation to sexual function. And the issue there is that testicular cancer nearly always is a unilateral condition. And so for most men, if they have a normal uh, remaining testis, fortunately for both androgen function and for fertility, men will often have normal fertility. Uh, it can be impacted to a degree if they require adjuvant therapy like chemotherapy, but certainly... Uh, sexual function is often maintained well for men with testis cancer. It can be a cosmetic issue and that can be remedied if, if young men wish to consider a testis prosthesis. We use those. And so with a combination of those strategies, most men after testis cancer tend to actually manage well and feel like they have good sexual function. Um, bladder cancer, I mentioned, can affect men and women. And treatment of bladder cancer can impact on sexual function to a variable degree. It's also a very big spectrum of a condition. And so in situations of early bladder cancer, we'll often manage that with medication therapy or endoscopically. And most men and women in that situation maintain good sexual function. Um, if it's more advanced or high-risk bladder cancer or needing to consider strategies of either radiation therapy or chemo radiation, which it often is, or surgery, there then can be potential impact on sexual function. So for men, it's relatively similar to the impact from prostate cancer. It overlaps to a large degree. So the same counseling aspects apply a lot for men with bladder cancer. For women, it can also have a variable impact because most of these treatments overall uh, for bladder cancer uh, can involve vaginal tissue, and in terms of uh, even if they require gynecological surgery concurrent with treating bladder cancer. So there can definitely be impact for both women and men if bladder cancer is treated. But again, there are ways to be able to manage that, and there are certainly important aspects in the counselling of patients, but also options to treat it following uh, cancer surgery if it remains a concern for men and women. So I guess having a look more about those treatments specific to maintaining that sexual function, what options exist for patients currently? In men, the major concern, as I was saying, for most men tends to relate to erection function. Most men will maintain a sensation of climax, uh, even, even if there isn't strong erection response. So from that aspect, um, most men find that they still have that component of, of sexual satisfaction um, obviously, there's no simple substitute or management in relation to uh, the lack of semen production. But globally, it, it is also 
part of counselling men and their partner that there are certainly other aspects to sexual function as well as penetrative sex. And although obviously a big concern for a lot of men is to be able to achieve and maintain a quality erection, it's also important that the couple recognise many other aspects of intimacy and the fact that that's an important way of managing things going forward because there will be a lot of aspects when erection function, even though it can be improved, it may not ever return to being full normal function. So in ways of dealing with erection response, one thing that's changed a lot in the last uh, 10 to 20 years is the further development of the PDE5 tablet therapy. So people are aware of sildenafil or Viagra and Tadalafil. And these drugs have made a big difference in managing the condition. They're not universally effective in people who've had cancer therapy, but they can be. So for example, in men where we perform nerve sparing surgery, and if men have had further erection function before treatment, often these men will recover function with a tablet. The tablets are very safe to use. They can progressively be more effective. And the other big thing in this country is that they're becoming much less expensive now. So it's something that's fairly widely accessible and it's made a big difference. There is another aspect to pharmacotherapy for men, and that is using, using vasoactive agents as cavernosal injection therapy is a longstanding treatment that is effective. I mean, there's no doubt it can give men a good quality erection and there are several agents that can be used the main downside to a lot of men is a, is a psychological barrier of using direct injection into their penis for erection. And a lot of men find that a difficult treatment to come to terms with, um, but it is effective and it is available. Um, they have to do it a little bit cautiously to just avoid the risk of the side effect of priapism or persisting erection. But those pharmacotherapy agents are good. There are other things to consider if men don't want to consider using those agents or if they're not effective and the technology for the surgical implantation of a prosthesis has been around for quite some time. Again, the technology keeps evolving and developing, but it is a technology that does allow men, if that's an option they would prefer to consider, to have a procedure, have an implant for a prosthesis the technology has improved to improve the satisfaction for men and their partners, but it's not, certainly it doesn't replace normal physiological erections. And so as part of counselling, again, it, it's important to give men realistic expectations. Um, but it is an option that's available. How does that work, the penile prosthesis? So there are several versions of the technology, but in principle, the main component of it is implanted surgically within the body of the corpora and the commonest version that's used is one that is an inflatable device so there's a reservoir of saline that sits in the pelvis and it's activated generally by an activation pump that sits in the scrotum next to the testis so it can be activated or deactivated as required uh, just by cycling the saline into the cylinders of the uh, of the mechanism now, obviously, before these treatments available, it sounds like things can be done, but I guess there would be a lot of concerns around the artificiality of assisted erections, or, you know, a loss of spontaneity, physical side effects, costs, and obviously there might be an absence of information and support and devices not working. Do you see any workarounds for these issues? 
So they're all very important issues that you flagged. And basically, for, for most men, um, uh, when they're considering firstly the decision for treatment, but then potentially looking at actively managing it, the ability to access treatments, uh, the issue for funding some of these treatments, and then just their general acceptability is definitely an issue. And there's no doubt it's an area that there is some unmet need to basically get men good, important, relevant information and also to try and individualise or to work out with each um, individual and their partner what might be the appropriate treatment. And sometimes it can be an issue of being for the patient to be aware of what's uh, available. Sometimes it's a little bit of a trial and error situation to work out what might work or even potentially whether a combination of strategies might be working. Um, it can certainly be a frustrating period um, in terms of a recovery from cancer treatment where other aspects of their recovery often uh, occur pretty rapidly. For example, if men have you know, keyhole-based robotic surgery, physically those men are often feeling very, very well very quickly. And so to then have persisting issues with sexual function and recognize that that will require a longer period of time to work through potentially accessing treatments such as complex things like injection-based therapy. A lot of men do find it probably one of the more daunting or one of the more significant parts of recovery from prostate cancer or urological cancer treatment. And there certainly is unmet need. I mean, there are uh, federally funded prostate cancer nurse specialists, of which there are quite a few throughout Australia now, including in some of the provincial areas. And one of their important roles is to try and improve access to these differences for men, to, particularly to address the needs of sexual function. Good to hear that we've got that now. Um, obviously, you're seeing a diverse range of patients. How does this treatment differ between men and women? Do the same level of treatments exist for women experiencing sexual difficulties? There are a variety of ways in which the treatment can impact women. Um, and again, part of this overlaps for other uh, uh, aging related changes that occur for women. So some women who have urological cancer may have had other gynecological treatment um, not all, but quite a significant number of women are postmenopausal. So all of that needs to be considered in terms of what they recognise in part of their uh, normal sexual function and how that may have changed with uh, urological cancer treatment. And part of the assessment and the treatment therefore looks at uh, assessing their menopausal status, um, what the role potentially can be of using uh, some hormone replacement, often just topical hormone replacement, which can make a big difference to improve sexual function in women postmenopausally, uh, and looking at options in relation to, uh, not commonly, but whether even some specific gynecological assessment and advice in relation to uh, post-surgical or post-radiation vaginal uh, changes can be addressed. And although um, there are some limitations in relation to that. It should definitely be a consideration for all patients, all women who we look after with urological cancer to address this. And certainly there are options to be able to address sexual function. Clearly, it tends to look at it in a different aspect in relation to male sexual function, but equally as important though. 
And do you see that there's any difference between age groups? Obviously, there's going to be a difference with menopause, but between men and women, uh, when you get some younger patients, would that treatment differ for older patients? There's no question that that's an important aspect. I mean, the, the issue of sexual function over age is a very individual thing. And, and uh, again, it's, it's an important thing to, to clarify and discuss in detail with all patients prior to treatment because uh, uh, even, say, men and women uh, in their 60s, 70s and 80s, even though they might have comorbidities, uh, quite a significant number of those people are still sexually active. And for some of those people, it's still a very, very important part of their life. So uh, we would certainly never assume that age means that people are not sexually active. And it's a very important part of the discussion to have. There's no doubt, however, that younger men and women in general are more sexually active and in general will find it a bigger impact on their quality of life. And so there's no question that um, it requires you know, very extensive counselling for younger men and women if they're having treatment to be able to uh, identify it as a concern, to be able to look at ways to try and minimise the impact on it, and obviously to focus on treatments. I mean, generally, all of the treatments uh, can potentially apply equally across the age groups, but clearly uh, in younger patients, um, a big part of that involves... Uh, some specific detail counselling and often uh, very early intervention and focus on it early after treatment in order to try and maximise the potential for recovery or return of function, but also to you know, address what is clearly going to be a big psychological component of treatment for younger men and women. I guess uh, another big factor that we've been talking a lot about is including the partner in a lot of these discussions. Do you find that um, patients with different sexual orientations, is that something you need to consider as well in treatment? Um, it's something that we would initially always bring up with the patient in terms of um, uh, with their consent, how much they would like to involve their partner of, uh, of, uh, of whatever orientation. And you know, we recognise that sexual function tends to be important for men and women, regardless of that orientation. And although there may be specific needs and the patient may identify that there may be specific needs based on their orientation, um, it's clearly very important to address regardless. So there has been some work and research that's looked at that to try and address needs in gay couples and otherwise, but it's probably equally important to address across the spectrum. And certainly it's an important thing to identify early on in the treatment and to aim to involve the partner regardless. That's good to hear. And lastly, just to wrap up, are there any kind of preconceptions that you come across often in your line of work? Of course, when you deal with a big spectrum of the population, um, there certainly can be um, some misunderstandings in general in relation to some of the basic aspects of sexual function, including, for example, changes of sexual function with age in terms of what the normal aging is. And probably an important part of the discussion we have early on is what the expectation of that is, because clearly it's important to have a little bit of basic understanding of that, you know, you know and it can vary from some people believing that they'll maintain very you know, unchanging sexual function late into their life, as opposed to people who believe that sexual function will, you know, discontinue in midlife. And clearly 
neither of those is, is correct. And basically, it's an important thing to try and define normal sexual function to have some um, basic discussion in relation to that. So that's one aspect of things. Um, the other aspect is that both the treatment of the conditions in terms of the treatment of the cancer, but also the management of sexual function continues to change and evolve. And so, you know, it's become, fortunately, it's become a big focus of research and of, of looking at how we manage the condition. And so for some people, um, it, it's important to address that they may have some preconceptions of, say, cancer therapy, of people they know, potentially of relatives or otherwise, where there's been an enormous impact in relation to side effects, including with sexual function. So understandably, some people come along being aware that someone who's had treatment, potentially treatment that we would now recognise as not necessarily contemporary, um, has had a big impact on sexual function. So to firstly uh, consider what normal sexual function is, to define the impact on it, but also just to give people a realistic expectation of what contemporary treatments involve is a big part of it. And, and certainly that can, I think, aim to, to clarify, but in general, hopefully give people some reassurance fairly early on that you know, there, are, there is some progress being made in terms of treatment strategies, but it's certainly an important part of the whole counselling process. Lovely. And then one last thing, if you were to give our listeners uh, one tip for them to take into their career as doctors, what would that be? Look, um, you'll probably hear it every day, but um, listening is, you know, the key skill. And there probably isn't any other area in urology where it's more important in really trying to, to get a good appreciation from the potential impact on quality of life uh, that that people would recognize in relation to sexual function. So as much as we want to find out a lot about different aspects of their condition otherwise, I mean, it's an area where clearly patients aren't always easily comfortable in talking to health professionals, particularly if they're, you know, it's early on in, in uh, getting to know somebody. So having some rapport with the patient, certainly being able to listen to what they recognize as their needs are is important. And, if you've defined that foundation and have some trust in the first instance for their care, it makes an enormous difference. And many people will tell you that further down the track in their journey, particularly if they feel like they've been able to address things, not necessarily always successfully, but even if they've been able to address things, most of them will appreciate that aspect of the, of the relationship with their doctor. So, so just you know, listening clearly important for many, many aspects, but definitely as part of the assessment and communication in addressing this area. Definitely sounds like a key aspect that a lot of our listeners can take away from today. Thank you very much for speaking today, Dr. Watson. It has been absolutely enlightening. It's a pleasure, Anton.